If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 9. We'll be in verses 42 through 50. And uh, these are uh, just right out of the gate. These are not easy verses. This is not a fun passage to preach on. Uh, but this is where we find ourselves this morning, and uh, we know that we don't skip passages in the Bible, that we just continue talking about them and seeing what God has for us this morning. So this is not a light and airy, uh, fun, uh, beach time, summertime sermon series this morning, uh, but I'll try to uh, help us see what Jesus is imploring his disciples to see, and that we would walk out of here with a desire to live accordingly to God's Word, not according to our whims and feelings and desires. That we would be people of the book, and so when the book calls us to something, then we would would listen and we would obey. At the conclusion of our time, our invitation will be trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And sometimes it's difficult for us because we know those words, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey, but we somehow believe that there's an alternative way, right? That there's, there's got to be another way out there besides trusting and obeying to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. And we will scour and look for every other way to find the peace that surpasses all understanding other than trusting in Jesus. And so this morning, when the Lord calls us to be careful and cautious because of the eternal realities that are around us, I pray that our hearts are not put off by that reality or that we don't check out because we would say, well, I've trusted in Jesus and so I'm not going to hell, so I don't need to listen to anything that Jesus says about hell because I've got my get out of hell free card and I'm going to play that really nicely one day when I get to heaven. I pray that we wouldn't check out with the understanding that we are saved by God's grace, that we would look at these realities that Jesus is calling us to as warnings for us. Jesus is over after all, talking to his apostles and his disciples, right? He's talking to his inner circle of believers here at this point, and he's giving them the reality of hell and the reality of how we influence and care for the least of these and the littlest, the weakest of these. So with that, let me read for us Mark chapter 9, 42 through 50. You've got your outline. There's plenty of room for Uh, Notes this morning, or as always, your grocery list or where you would like to eat afterwards can be found on the back. So let's follow forward. Mark chapter 9, 42 through 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be uh, if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. We're off to a good start so far. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help this morning. Dear Lord, we, we come to you with this text in front of us knowing that we have a tremendous challenge of the urgency and severity of how we should deal with sin. 
And Lord, I do pray that our hearts would not be put off by it, but that we would be stirred towards holiness and righteousness. Lord, if there is any way in us that does not need to be there, Lord, I pray that this morning we would not walk out with an attitude of levity or dismissiveness, but of urgency. Lord, we thank you for your word that is a lamp into our feet and a light into our pathway. Would we continue to hold it as an authority, as the authority in our life to lead us and to guide us? Would your peace overwhelm our hearts this morning? Would we have comfort where we need comfort? Would we have conviction where we need conviction? Lord, of these next very few moments, would you teach us, shape us, and mold us more and more into your image? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The first thing that you'll see on your outline is, number one, Jesus' care for little ones. Care for and concern for little ones. Now, let's be reminded where we are in this passage that just a few weeks ago, we looked at the previous passage in Mark chapter 9 where the disciples, who have had quite the fun run of being rebuked, right? They've had the moment where they couldn't heal the uh, boy, and so uh, they had that embarrassment, and then they're arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom, right? That whole wonderful moment where the disciples, in the midst of having a, a humble type moment, are arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Like, can you imagine that conversation? Hey, guys, who's going to be the greatest? You, me, not Peter. Remember, get behind me Satan. Peter, you're not it. So who else is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Right? This is their argument. So Jesus brings an object lesson to them in the form of a little child that he sets in their midst and begins to teach them about what it looks like to be great in the kingdom of God. It looks like being like a child. Like trusting and believing and having faith that would lead you to uh, be faithful in your ever doing. So Jesus, right in their midst, is going to bring a child and set them in their midst and remind them this is a picture of what it means to trust and have faith in the Lord. And so with that, Jesus has brought this little child in their midst, and now he's going to pick up that conversation and, who, and say, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Now, you, you can say that it's whoever causes a child to sin, but the, the inclination would be receiving faith like a, a, like, like a child, that you would have faith that would just lead you towards. So one who may be weak in or young in their faith. We as believers should have care and concern for a little one because Jesus gives a very strong warning and admonition for those who would seek to disrupt or dismantle someone whose faith is either weak or one who is young in their faith. And I think instead of glossing over this and saying, well, I'm not guilty of that, right? I would never cause a young one to sin. We need to zero in here because Jesus gives a very strong warning to us. Right? He says, whoever would cause one of these little ones to sin, it would be better for him, it would be better for him to have a giant millstone tied around his neck and thrown into the depth of the sea. Right? This is what Jesus says. It would be better, and he doesn't give an either or. He just says, it would be better. Right? It would be better than the other alternative. It would be better for you. And a giant millstone would be this massive stone that couldn't be lifted or rolled by a human. It would have to be pulled or pushed by a large animal, a very strong animal, to push this massive stone to grind the grain. It would be better for you 
who would cause a little one to sin, to have this giant millstone around your neck and tossed into the sea. This is a very, very stark warning, is it not? I mean, we feel the weight of Jesus. This is not just like, it would be better for you to have a little paper cut. No, this is a big deal. It would be better for you to have a giant millstone around your neck and tossed into the sea, lest you cause, lest you be the source of or the cause of one who is young or weak in their faith, sinning or stumbling. That is a clear warning to us as believers. Because I think we recognize and understand that we, we see in our culture and our world a world that is doing this constantly. Right? A world that is constantly dismantling the faith, not just of young or weak individuals, but of everyone. Everything you're reading, you're looking at things that are dismantling the Christian faith, trying to attack the Christian faith in every sense of the word, from universities and scholars and everything, dismantling the Christian faith as people go out, dismantling the, So we expect it. The world is expected to look at the Christian faith and say, this doesn't make sense. This isn't right. This isn't good. This grace that you talk about could not be sufficient for a sinner. So we expect it from the world that's outside these walls. But Jesus is going to zero in and say, there is no room for those who would claim Christ to cause a little one or one who is weak in their faith to stumble. As we zero in on that for a moment, you may say that there's a couple different things we can look at this, but there's a way that we would say the depth of love for us towards those who are young and weak in their faith, that we as believers should have a depth of love for those who are young and weak in their faith, that we would desire for them to be built up and grow in their faith, not torn down and led towards temptation. So there are two ways in which we can cause others to stumble. One would be direct temptation. And I pray and I would urge and beg and think strongly for anyone in this room that is directly tempting a person who is young or weak in their faith. If you are doing that, you should strongly consider stopping. If scripture is not strong enough, if you are tempting, if you are causing a young one to stumble in their faith or sin in their faith, I cannot urge you any stronger than Jesus has already urged you. You should strongly consider stopping for your own soul, for your own sake, for your eternal destination. If you are guilty or you are causing a young one or a weak one or someone who is young or weak in their faith to stumble and lead them directly into sin, I cannot urge you enough, stop. There is much at stake for your life and this life of this young one. Friends, Jesus cannot urge you enough. If you are directly causing a young one to stuff, Jesus does not have enough words and enough um, language here to tell you what is due punishment for you if you are to cause and to be the direct cause of a young or weak one in stumbling and falling in their faith. If you are leading a child, someone who is young or weak in the faith, to stumble if you are leading them into temptation. Jesus gives the greatest of worry for you. He's basically saying, woe to you. Woe to you who would cause, as a believer, wearing the marks of Jesus, 
saying and claiming, I am a believer, but at the same time, causing a weak or a young one to stumble and to fall. Do you see the height of hypocrisy and why Jesus would say, woe be to you? And so, again, I'm not saying any of us are guilty of that because that is a, is a deep and strong admonition to say that you would purposefully cause a young one to stumble. But I also recognize that there is indirect temptation by our lives and by our lifestyles that at times can cause a young one or a weak one to stumble. And I think none of us would say, hopefully, man, I pray and hope that none of us would would say with our hearts that we are intentionally doing this, but I would just encourage you to look at the maybe indirect temptations that you would cause someone who is weak or young in their faith to stumble over in the way they look at you, the way they watch you. This is especially important for parents of, of kids who are young or weak in the faith, knowing that they are watching you parents and grandparents, watching what Jesus means to you watching what you have done with the gospel, watching what Jesus has meant to you in the gospel. And so we would never want to be guilty of an, even an indirect temptation to say, yes, I come and I profess Jesus, but when I walk out those doors, it is of little to no consequence in my life. Everybody showing your children and showing kids, showing those that you are involved with, that this gospel that we sing about in these walls is great for this room, but it has no meaningful consequence once you get to your car. Friends, we we see whoever causes one of these to sin. I mean, this is what Jesus would say. So let me also look at it in the positive light here. Let me shed some positive light because I believe Jesus is giving us this great admonition, this great encouragement and warning sign, but he's also reminding us of the other side of the coin here. That Jesus is saying, as believers, woe to us if we cause a young one to stumble. But I think the opposite is also true. Blessed is he who would build up a child and train up a child. You see, Jesus is constantly saying, let the children come unto me. Right? He's constantly saying, if you want to see a picture of what Christ-like faith looks like, here is a child. Look at the way that they follow and trust. Look at the little boy who brought his fish and loaves and expected things to happen. Look at the faith of a child to see what the picture of what it means to follow Jesus looks like. And so I think on the opposite side where he would say, woe to you who would tear down or allow a child to stumble over your actions. He would also say, blessed are you who pour your life into children to build up, to pour the gospel into. And I am so incredibly thankful for a church like this that sees the fruit of pouring into our children, showing them the gospel, teaching the gospel. One of the coolest things over this past week is to see as the word got out to our teachers and our preschool and children that you can get back into your classrooms. Man, they beat down the door to get back into their classrooms, to get the paint sets out, the puzzles out. If you walk through the hallways, they have been preparing for your kids for months. And now, as they are now ready in their room, they are like grabbing on, waiting for your kids to walk in because they want to pour Jesus into their little hearts. This is what our, we believe that it's important for us to show Jesus. That's why we invest in choirs from the earliest of age. That's why we sent kids out in Incredicids camp, while we're sending them out to youth choirs and all sorts of places. Why, if you want to go on a mission trip, we want to send you out on family mission trips. So families with their kids go together. We want you to experience what it means to build up your kids from an early age. And we want to walk right beside you. Because we don't want it to be said. 
Woe to you who had great opportunity to pour the gospel into the next generation. And instead of showing them and demonstrating what it means to follow Jesus, you showed them routine and what it means to simply go through the motions of church. I, I don't want that for our church. I want us to show and demonstrate that this gospel means something to us. That Jesus has saved us from the pit of hell. And that for our kids and our grandkids, that they would see that this gospel has changed us. And that we would not be guilty of causing a young one who is weak in their faith, young in their faith, to stumble and to be led into temptation. And so I would encourage you, as VBS comes our way, be actively involved as we invest in our kids. Parents, be understanding that your kids are watching what you have done with the gospel. They're watching what you have experienced with Jesus. And they're taking note. And so Jesus would move from jeopardizing others and having care for others to jeopardizing and the care for our own souls. So number two, you see, care for our souls. And so here in this moment, I just want to pause and just remind us that I, I've intentionally said care for our souls. You can cross out our souls and put my soul. And I've said this before, but I know that at times we have a tendency when we start talking about sin to get real good at looking across the pew. Right? We get real good at looking across the aisle or across the cubicle at work, looking at other people's sin and identifying all the sin in everybody else. But we have a mighty hard time looking and examining at our own sin and giving our own sin the same weight that we give to others. And so this morning, I know that you may want to give the notes to your spouse or to your boss or to someone who's across the aisle from you at work and just say, if you just, hey, just, you got a lot of sin, and so I'm gonna need you to <laughs> deal with it. And then that's not what I'm asking this morning. I'm asking for us to take a moment as we see Jesus's severity of how he feels about sin in the life of the believer, to, to realistically look at your own heart and not be dismissive over sin or minimizing it in our own lives, which we have a tendency to do, to maximize others' sins and minimize our own sins, that we would look honestly at ourselves because we do see in Jesus' words through 43 through 50 that there is a real reality of hell. It's not pleasant to talk about, but it is in Scripture that there is a real hell that Jesus is calling us to avoid and giving us all that we need to avoid in Jesus. So as we look, at, look in these next few moments, let's look at these care for our, my soul. Jesus here, as he looks at 43 through 50, he's going to demonstrate the urgency and the seriousness of sin. In other Gospels, you see that this is attached to lust and to sexual sin, but here you see in the context it is overarching sin in our lives, and so Jesus is going to say, if your hand calls you to sin, cut it off. Eyes, tear them out. Now, as I said before, when we talked about lust and sexual sin, that Jesus is not advocating for amputation of our bodies, because you know as well as I do that we can cut off our, sin, our, our right hand, but we can still sin with our left hand. We can gouge out our eyes, but we can still think all sorts of thoughts. So Jesus is not calling us to radically amputate our bodies today because we know that we can still sin with anything that's left of us. As long as we have a pulse, we can keep on sinning. What Jesus is calling us to is a radical urgency to cut everything off in our sin. 
that we would not look at our sin and say, ah, oh, man, it's not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. It's not hurting anybody. It's not that big of a problem. No, Jesus is saying that sin always separates. Sin always has an effect on us. So cut it off. Tear it away. Get rid of it in our lives. And so let me ask three questions that can help us as we examine, are we caring for our own eternal souls and are we being serious in the fight against sin? Number one, how are you actively removing sin in your life? How are you today actively removing sin in your life? See, we cannot be become passive in our sin, dismissing and minimizing. The question today, how are you actively removing sin in your life? Several weeks ago, uh, Brittany and I woken up in the middle of the night to uh, what you have probably experienced, and it's what binds us together in this room as well, to uh, uh, at least 2 a.m. or 1.30 a.m. noise that just sounded like a beep. We went back to bed, and about 30 minutes later, what do you know? We heard it again. You've been there. You've done that. You bought that T-shirt. It's terrible, right? Worst day ever, right? In the middle of the, middle of the night, you hear that little beep go off, and you begin to think, I have some options here, right? You know it. You begin to think, I've got some options. I can go back to bed, and maybe this thing will go away, even though you know it won't, but you think somehow, somehow it'll go away. About 30 minutes later, the next beep goes off, and you begin to think, Maybe it was just a fluke, right? It was just two beeps, right? That probably means that the batteries are doing great and that we're going to be all right. So two beeps, and you begin to have all sorts of mental gymnastics in your mind about why you don't need to get out of bed and take care of the beeping noise, right? And I know that I'm speaking from my own experience, but you've done the same thing because that thing always goes off in the middle of the night. Never has it gone off at 2 p.m. Don't know why. Don't know how they've done that, but they have done it beautifully, right? So Somewhere around 3 a.m., you have that choice when it starts beeping every five minutes. You have a choice, right? You have a choice where you can say, hey, I can just let this thing continue to beep all throughout the night, and I can fix it in the morning. Or normally you have that thought to say, if there, is a, if there somehow happens to be a fire in the middle of the night, man, we're going to be in trouble. And so you get out of bed. You find the right fire alarm because it sounds like it's coming through every fire alarm in your entire house. You find the right fire alarm and of course you make adjustments knowing that if you don't change that beeping fire alarm that it could cause catastrophic damage in your house. It's going to keep you awake at night knowing that that beeping fire alarm is going to go off over and over and over again and until you get out of bed and do something about it, it's not going to change. It's only going to get worse. And for us, friends, we have this sin alarm in our hearts, and at times we let that thing go off, and we just lay in bed believing, surely a fire is not going to go off. Nah, it's not going to be that bad. Ah, I can sleep through the, you know, th- sleep through it. It's not that big. I'll change the battery later. I'll take care of it later. And all the while, that little chirping goes off every 15 minutes, every 10 minutes, every five minutes, and eventually that little beeping goes away. And that fire alarm no longer is productive in your household. And at times in our own hearts, we've let that, that alarm in our hearts to get sin beep for so long that it stopped beeping and we simply do not recognize the sin in our own hearts any longer. We become numb to our sin. 
So I ask you this morning, how are you actively recognizing and removing sin in your life? And number two, have you and are you waging war against your sin? Now, I, I'm going to use the waging war uh, terminology here to say, are we caring for our souls? Are we waging war? Because I believe Jesus is using strong language when we talk about waging war against our sin. That this is not a passive, hey, I need to band-aid it and it'll feel better. This is a waging of war against our sin. And waging war is not pleasant. It is not fun. It is not enjoyable. We don't enjoy war. We don't enjoy the pain that war inflicts. As we see Jesus say, if your right hand causes you to sin, take radical measures to stop sin. And it's here that what I want to get across to us is that moralism is not the goal here. I'm not asking you, hey, stop sinning so that you can just be a better human. I'm not saying, hey, you know, you just really need to stop sinning so you can be such a bad person. Right, the goal is not behavioral correction so that you can be a good person. The goal is Christ-likeness and holiness. That we, we are sinners saved by God's grace. There's something in us that is stirred towards holiness, that we seek after righteousness, that we want to be pure and holy before the Lord. And we will not perfect this, but we strive towards it. And the moment that we quit caring about our Christ-likeness, the moment that we quit caring about our holiness is a moment that we should be gravely concerned about our souls. And so I ask you, are you and have you waged war against your sin, which at times looks like confession of your sin to other believers, removing sin in different ways, and help in community of context of other believers? One pastor said, we are either killing sin, our sin is killing us. We are either in the efforts to kill sin in our lives or sin is killing us. Which would lead to the last one. Are you turning to Jesus? Last question I'll ask you in the midst of all this and you can get rid of your sin. You can cut off different parts of sin in your life without turning your hearts and your affections to Jesus. And that'll help for a little while but it is not long-term sustainable. Friends, are you turning your everything to Jesus? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. So seek first his kingdom. Seek first the face of Jesus. Seek after Jesus first and foremost. And his righteousness. And all these things will be added. So seek the face of Jesus. Care for little ones and care for our own souls as we pursue Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for what you have done. We thank you for the grace that you have shown. We thank you for your peace and your patience and your kindness with us. I pray that we are urgent and serious about sin removal in our own lives. Knowing that you're not advocating a amputation of our physical body parts, but you are calling us to circumcise our hearts, to remove those spotty flesh parts in us that simply do not need to be there. Lord, when we wonder, what are those things? What does sin look like? What are the parts that we've fallen short? I pray that your word would lead and guide us to recognize in us those things that do not need to be there. The Holy Spirit would lead and guide us to remove that which does not need to be in us. So teach us, Lord. 
Show us the way. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.